welcome back to Dose of Support, a podcast where healthcare professionals share their stories and find community. Let's learn from each other and utilize some self-care in healthcare. I'm Dr. Vanessa Casper, a nurse practitioner, and I'm here to help our guests have a platform to share. Remember, I'm not your healthcare provider and neither are my guests, but we do encourage you to seek out care from your own professional. This podcast is not affiliated with any employer. And let's also remember to protect privacy and abide by HIPAA. It's hard out there. So let's find some self-care in healthcare. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners, welcome back to our weekly huddle. We're huddling up today, and I just wanted to give a special thank you to a few people. So Dr. Paige Harper, Dr. Lydia Ringstaff, and my friend and NICU OT, um, Anna Karen, they all reached out and recommended the Fit On app. And so this is a free app and it was, it's like free workouts. You can always level up. There's good stretches. There's good, I just love what I'm, what I'm seeing so far. So I've downloaded it. I'm on it. And then a couple people also reached out with some YouTube easy, just throw on YouTube and search for Sydney Cummings. That uh, YouTuber recommendation came from our very own Dr. Danielle McGinnis from last week's episode. And then um, a bunch of people reached out with the recommendation for Fitness Blender. So if you go on YouTube and just search Fitness Blender, you can find all sorts of videos. And I have to say, I've actually done some of those before because um, when I when I looked them up, I'm like, oh, yeah, these guys. And I did find their workouts easy to access, like shorter, and that's that's helpful with the baby. So I really appreciate everyone that was like, oh, yeah, girl, we got you. So now I have lots of options and I don't have any excuses, right? So I'm a get on that. And then other than that, I have to say I've been kind of on and off taking some furlough days at work. My situation is that I I can take some PTO for that time. And so I'm choosing to do that so that I don't take a financial hit. And what's interesting is I'm taking these days off because I've been asked to use them if I can. And I want to help out my organization. So I'm taking these days off, but I'm also increasing my workload. So I'm taking on some more patients, which is great. Like I'm happy to do that. I want to do that. But I'm basically going to be trying to fit all this work into less actual days on duty. And so I'm I'm going to be trying to balance that and I'm just wondering if anyone out there is doing that too or if they if they've noticed that their caseload has gone down or their workload has gone up. I just think that might be a good discussion for us to have. So yeah, let me know, drop me a line. This week is probably the most important discussion I've had with a guest. And so If you have not shared the show with a friend, if you have not listened to all the shows yet and you're not really sure, I mean, if this, if there was one show so far that I would ask you to listen to, it's this one, especially if you are a white person or a person that wants to be an ally for black people. And so this week's episode, we do talk about social determinants of health and we talk about how racism plays a role in that. So It's a really important topic, and we also have a lot of fun and a lot of—it's really informative, and so I'm very grateful 
that our guest Imam joined us this week. I hope you also enjoy the episode. Stay tuned. listeners, welcome back to the show. Today I have M.M. Brown as our guest. She is a licensed physician assistant, aka a PA, and holds a dual master's degree in public health and physician assistant. As a Black woman, she represents only 3% of her profession, and she uses her skills to serve the underserved and the most vulnerable populations among us from California. She describes her story as prolific. Welcome, M.M. Thank you so much for having me today. What a great day. And it indeed is a beautiful day here in California, as usual. So this should be good. I was going to say, like, isn't it always in California? (laughs) Absolutely. So I never complain. (laughs) Well, um, give us a little bit of your background. What got you interested in healthcare before we get into your specific role? I was born and raised in Nigeria spent a decade there and then um, emigrated to the States. And so my mom was a physician trained, worked in Nigeria. But when we came to the States, she did not work as a physician. What I saw her do just, you know, growing up, there was always just this desire and need to emulate her because of the the compassion, the kindness, um, the way in which she just cared for people beyond just her family. And so that's really what kind of always, I always wanted to be a doctor, to be frank. I became a physician assistant in the event that, you know, when we were in college, and I'll be also um, clear here that I was not aware of what a physician assistant was, because when I um, enrolled in undergraduate, I did enroll to become a medical doctor, took the classes. And so essentially, when I got to the point in my um, in my training where I did not do well enough on the MCAT, and for all you uh, prospective medical students, you understand that, my counselor then at my college said, well, why don't you just think about becoming a physician assistant? I didn't know what that was. And so I said, sure, I'll research it. But what does that mean? And her response was, well, you don't really have to do much more because you satisfied all the prerequisites. And essentially, I looked it all up. Yeah, I looked it all up. And she was uh, correct. The only thing I had to do was take um, the GRE. When I saw that a physician assistant can still do the same thing, I I mean, it just kind of was a no-brainer for me. Beautiful. So it sounds like you created your own path when there was this roadblock. I think I have talked to physicians about like if they had to do medical school again, or if they, and some people say they would go back and they would go into nursing or they would go into a different path because it's not as long, it's less debt, et cetera. And so I've heard, I've heard people make a switch like you before. How did your family accept that? And that's such a great point. And, and I think this is another reason why, and, and our profession is a growing profession, I have to say. But Yes, I because of my sister, because of my mom, you can imagine that just by default, I, I am uh, surrounded by a lot of medical doctors. And of those medical doctors, I still till this day get the response of exactly what you said, which is, you know, just, you know, knowing what I know now and going through what I went through now, I wish I had, you know, the opportunity to do something such as a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. And now as a physician assistant, um, you still have to um, obtain that um, undergraduate degree, and then you apply to a medical um, to a 
physician assistant program. A lot of the programs now do require some. um, Yeah, I have heard that like some schools are requiring like, let's say a thousand hours of patient care experience. Correct. Before before you can even apply to school. Yes. But in the event you say finish undergraduate and you work as a paramedic or a nurse or something in that realm and you satisfy those patient care hours, you can imagine that that's another, that's two years. But then if you go into a PA program, majority of the programs are average about two years. So that's two years and then you can come out and practice. So my family was very supportive. There was never a moment of, oh, well, are you sure you don't want to go down the medical school route? Um, Because I think they recognize that no matter what endeavor I delve into, I'm going to be successful. And I do encourage people to look into other parts of of, um, healthcare that they can work in because you can still serve and provide care in a manner that you want to provide care. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Another benefit of being a physician assistant is that we have the ability to switch um, into different um, branches. And so if I work in primary, I, I have stuck to primary care my entire career, but if I, I have friends that have done cardiology first, then, you know, they went into orthopedics and then they went into ER medicine. So you have that ability to switch because of the role that physician assistants hold. And I should define what a physician assistant is because that is important. I was just going to say, like, we need to back this train up because um, I think that I think that it's it's likely that people have either been cared for or they know a physician assistant, but they didn't know that that person was a physician assistant. Does that make sense? Like they, they went to a clinic, they saw a provider, they didn't know the letters behind that person's name. They assumed that it was a physician, etc. And here you are, and me too, providing this excellent level of care. In some studies, we are we are shown to provide the same quality of care as a physician, if not better, mm-hmm. in especially in primary care realms. A physician assistant, the name, the title, there's PA after your name. It takes two years of school at least. Let's talk about what that schooling is about. Like what what is the training like? So uh, a physician assistant, we are licensed medical providers that work with supervision of a medical doctor. As I stated, I completed my undergrad uh, graduate program. My program was actually a 36 uh, month long program. And the only reason oh. it was that long, yeah, is because, so two and a half years, is because uh, there was the, it was a dual master's degree. So you we completed, all who graduated received a master's degree in physician assistant studies and a master's degree in public health. So it was just two tracks. Um, so that program was really the very first year and a half was you strictly just being in the classroom, completing everything that's related to your didactic learning. So your clinical skills, you know, physiology. And so really, and the program is at, was actually located in the same um, campus as a medical school. And so I bring that up because we were actually on some in some classes taking classes simultaneously with the medical students and so i recall taking pharmacology with some of the the medical students right. um you know and so you're getting this um training that's kind of meshed the caliber of patient that you're supposed to see is going to be uh the same as a medical doctor so when a patient walks in that is complaining of abdominal pain chest pain um you know any you know my blood pressure is uncontrolled that patient is still going to be put on my schedule exactly so you are doing similar work if yes. not the same work in some settings yes but i think you know you know what your limitations are and i think that's what 
what's important. Tell us about your role, what a physician assistant does every day. So for me, I've spent, um, again, the past 13 years in primary care in a, you know, in a federally qualified healthcare center in an underserved population. And so the vast majority of patients that I've seen are either um, uninsured, underinsured, um, or, you know, insurance, but the bulk are usually either uninsured or insured, but insured, you know, with um, government, so Medicaid insurance. And so it's... But, Imam, isn't everybody required to have insurance? <laughs> why? Why? Uh, how is that possible? Aren't they penalized? Well, listen, we have to be realistic here. And I think, unfortunately, what ends up happening in healthcare, and, and this ends up becoming a a conundrum, it be, it it it's leading to burnout because what ends up happening is that you're really forced to make do with very little. If I'm serving a migrant population where I have farm workers that, you know, don't have insurance because they're not documented, so they can't qualify, it doesn't still take away the the human right that they need. They need health care. And so you still have to see that patient. I still have to see that uncontrolled diabetic and try to do the best that I can with what is available for that particular. Right. We are not going to turn these people away. Not Everybody deserves health care. Health care is a human right. And I think that some people think that they shouldn't have to pay for that. And I have news for those people because you're already paying for it. Absolutely. Medicare and Medicaid, we've already been paying into these systems. And those are the systems that pay for this care. If we had a Medicare for all plan where everybody would be covered and those dollars were spread evenly so that everyone could be covered, maybe we could reallocate our, our, our resources so that people were cared for better. Anyway, I'm getting on a soapbox. Well, but no, it, it's a it's a correct soapbox. And I'll say that in the <laughs> event that no, if for everyone who opposed that idea, look what COVID-19 and the coronavirus has exposed about our healthcare system. Because to me, this is the first time in history where across the board, so this is nationwide and then globally, that it didn't even really matter if you had insurance or not. Because at the beginning, and really quite frankly, still now, we still have people that are not able to get tested. Uh, my family is in Texas. So I'm, uh, you know, we have family there and I still get reports. Texas has numbers just skyrocketing and people still telling me that they're waiting six to seven hours in any line to get COVID tested is really ridiculous if you think about it. And the numbers I'm giving you are, are, or the, the reports I'm giving you are not people that are not insured. These are my family members that have great jobs and so it's right. just this idea that, well, I couldn't, my, I called my primary care doctor's office and they don't even have testing. So they referred me to a testing site. And at the testing site, I still have to wait. So we have to really sit and think like, is that appropriate? We're not even dealing with the population that is marginalized. I'm just talking right. about everyone else, right? right? And we are only as safe as our neighbor, Absolutely. as as the most vulnerable among us. We are only as safe and healthy and secure as the people that need the most help. So if you're out there and you don't get that, like you might be safe in your house, hold up at home, but the person working at the grocery store that has to go to work and get exposed, that has terrible health insurance, that can't get tested, they're going to still go to work because they have to. Absolutely. And like we need to protect those people because protecting 
them protects us and and makes the whole situation better. And so obviously, like a lot of listeners are right there with us. I know you guys are like (laughs) yelling at yelling at the podcast right now, but but I think a lot of people don't get the scope of the issue. They just think like, don't force me to wear a mask. Don't. Mm-hmm. Why are you taking my rights away? And it's not about you. It's it, it's never just been about you. And I think that that's an American problem, an American philosophy that it's so individualized and not mm-hmm. about the community. Absolutely. Sorry. I just like, oh, I get, I get a little passionate. <laughs> um, what does a day in the life as a physician assistant look like for you? Yes. Yeah, so for me, it is currently I'm working part time. And so I work two and a half days a week. And so, you know, schedule of eight to five, Monday and Tuesday, and then half day on a Wednesday. And my typical patient um, clientele, I'd say, is or or chief complaints is everything from, you know, your little kiddo and cute little babies that we have to make sure are up to date on vaccines. And so they're bringing in, bringing them in for well visits um, all the way up to um, your patient that has a multiple chronic illnesses. So, you know, diabetes, uh, hypertension, elevated cholesterol and thyroid function. Those are abdominal pain. So you get this huge gamut. Um, I work in a clinic that has a lot of physicians and other, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And so it is kind of this group practice and uh, specialists. And so that's a benefit of where I work is you can always bounce things off with the neurologist, the you know, yeah. just other specialists. And so that really You're never is alone. You're part of a team. Absolutely. How many patients do you see in one day? It varies. I mean, I, I'll give statistics that are not COVID related because, you know, okay. when the pandemic hit, just in general, the vast majority of our schedules were impacted um, just because, you know, we had to make mandates. And, and so, but before that, the average uh, patient number I would see in like an eight hour day, which is like two hour shift would probably be somewhere between, I'd say 16 to 18 patients. So that's about eight to nine patients per half day. Okay. What's the best part of being a PA in this setting? The best part for me, I really, and as, as, as frustrating as healthcare in general is the system, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. From yeah. the, the perspective of it really is you know, it, it ends up being um, patient number driven, right? Because revenue yes. is really what keeps us going. And and for those that don't know, and so when you get, when you come to a space where you're seeing your, your let's say your doctor, not a PA or a, uh, or a nurse practitioner, and you're wondering why they only have five minutes is really because that schedule is only built for 10. So by the time you go in, they, you know, the five minutes has been taken up with you being registered, your vital signs being taken. And so really there's limited time. As a physician assistant, I'm allotted a little bit more time, so 15 minutes. So I get a little bit more time with you, and that perhaps does um, increase patient satisfaction. So yeah. for me, the best part is really just getting to know each patient and really treating each patient as an individual. That really is the best part of, of being a PA for me, is that inspiration to really have somebody understand and really be encouraged to make a change. Like, I love that, too. I, I just love that, too. Okay. Do you see physician assistants in the media? This is, well, let me give you one um, noteworthy physician assistant that probably most people, well, I don't know that people know that she's a physician assistant. So um, Congresswoman um, Karen Bass out of California um, is actually, or was a physician assistant. 
um, practicing physician assistant, I should say, she obviously still is. Um, just in COVID-19, what was illuminated? What did you always hear? Like when we talk about healthcare workers that were frontline workers, you always heard about doctors and you heard about nurses, but mm-hmm. you really don't hear about the rest of the staff. You don't hear about you know, physician assistants, you know, the occupational therapist, the physical therapist, the respiratory therapist, and, you know, at um, times where people had to be, you know, ventilated. So you don't hear about those things. And I think for us, that that's work that we need to do as physician assistants in, in promoting who we are, what we do. Yeah. So I, I was trying to think of, have I seen a movie or do I know a TV show where someone was a PA? Or have I heard heard of a PA on the news? And I really came up with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's that's too bad because how many PAs are out there? What's the scope of your profession? I, I don't have that number on me, but I know that it's well over um, 60 plus thousand. I mean, there are tons of us out here. So this is not, um, I, I, and I give a 60,000, but really it's probably what I, Quoting a number I'm seeing now online, it, it was at a point well over 130 plus thousand PA. So, you know, is let's that sure. nationwide? Nationwide, yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Yes, in the nation. So, not globally, because there are um, physician assistants that work in different parts of the world, but they have different names. They're not all um, called physician assistants. Um, for instance, I believe in Europe, they are called physician associates. And the mm-hmm. name is even a whole thing. The name has been, you know, it's been discussed, should we in the States change the name from a physician assistant to a physician associate? Um, Because of this idea that when you tell somebody you're a physician assistant, then they think, well, so are you assisting the doctor? Right. Are you a medical assistant? Like, what exactly do you do? So the idea of, well, should we, so it, it, it was a, like, there was a vote, but I don't think it obviously happened to change that name. I do think that the name causes a lot of confusion. And I do think that there there may, in some states, there may be a push for independent practice where you're not actually under the physician um, or where it's it can be optional. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts around that? And what have you heard around that? Yes. And so, and before I answer that, I will say, so that is the, the key differentiation between um, a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner as far as the legality of it is mm-hmm. as a nurse practitioner, you all are considered independent practitioners, right? Mm-hmm. And the, right. this idea that you don't have to be linked, you know, linked is in quotation um, with a medical doctor, whereas a physician assistant, we do. I, I cannot practice as a solo practitioner. However, that doesn't mean that I can't own the, uh, the practice. I just can't be majority owner. So for instance, if I'm working with a medical doctor and we and they own the practice, they would have to own 59 or 51%, I'd own 49. So there's that. But we always still have to be linked. I can never not be tied to that. Now, that also is, it really depends on the person. Yes, there are a lot of physician assistants I know that would be fine working um, as a solo practitioner. Um, and then there are others that feel uh, that, no, I do like that guidance personally even 13 years later and being skilled enough to, you know, I've never really had to have, I mean, you know, I appreciate being able to bounce off the um, cases that I don't feel comfortable with, with another uh, clinician. So I am on that end where I don't have a problem having to be linked and I get it. So you, you have your undergraduate, then you get your graduate degree. Um, Do you just start practicing when you graduate or are there board exams or residency or 
fellowship or something like that that happens after? Yes. So you actually, so there's, yes to everything you said, actually. So (laughs) when you finish, you, yes, you have to take um, uh, the board exam. Now we do have a national, I alluded to um, them, the NCCPA is the accrediting body, uh, the accrediting body, but they also, uh, or the not accrediting body, they certify physician assistants, not accredited. So it is a national board. So everyone in any state in the United States will take this exact same board exam. I'm certain there are different variations. But once you are certified, so you pass the exam and you're certified, when you go to different states, you just have to apply for that license and of course, follow the state you know, laws, jurisdictions. And so the one thing that is different with physician assistants is we do have to take that um, board exam every six years. Um, and oh, so- wow. I didn't know that. We do. We are the only um, uh, healthcare uh, clinicians that have to do that. So that that is so. And then when you do pass, you can work now. Even though you, you are certified and every state is different. So California, I, I've never applied to a job where you did not, you couldn't, you, you could work without being certified. There are residencies available. They usually are in the more um, popular setting. So emergency medicine has a has residencies, and this is across the, uh, the board in different states. Um, orthopedics has residencies. And it really, the residencies, they're usually about a year long. Can, do people just go right into emergency medicine as well? Yes. But that really is also dependent on, are you going to have a supporting staff that's going to train you? Because as I alluded to earlier, you're going to be expected to know how to manage and treat patients, maybe not at a very high caliber um, patient, but you still are expected on day one to still be able to manage that running nose cough congestion. You know, in this time pa- pandemic, you better be comfortable seeing a patient that has COVID right off the bat because that learning cur- curve is very, very short. Once you start practicing, there is an assumption that you should have received that training while you rotated. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense um, with, that's what I've heard as well, but I, I didn't know if you had the board exam in each state and I didn't know how the licensing worked. So that's really helpful for me to know. And I, it's so unfortunate that you have to re, like retest every six years. That's some bullshit. Like that is just <laughs> that. I mean, that sounds horrible for for nurses and nurse practitioners, um, we have to do CME every two years. And for our NP boards, we recertify them every five years, but it's not with a test. It's with CME. And for the listeners, CME is is education credits. Um, if you're wondering, we need to prove that we're still competent and that we're up to date on the latest information to give the best care. So um, with that, why don't we we take a break and when we come back, Mem will share a story from her practice. Stay tuned. Welcome back, listeners. We have M.M. Brown, our licensed physician assistant, who is here to tell her story that she describes as prolific. So, M.M., take it away. Wonderful. So, I would like to, I, I thought about what what story would I want to tell, and I came to this conclusion of highlighting currently the month of July. It, July is usually... Uterine Fibroid Awareness Month. And I thought that I would use this time to 
shed a light on something that is really, really important to me, um, particularly because myself, I have suffered from uterine fibroids most recently, um, undergoing surgery to correct that issue. Um, and so really, um, uterine fibroids are actually, and a lot of people, we I'm, I say uterine fibroids, but most people just kind of hear the word fibroids, fibroids. And so most women actually, believe it or not, suffer from fibroids. It's about, I think it's by the age of 50, um, up to 90% of women would have had fibroids. Now, wow, like jaw on the floor. Yes. Wow. Yes. And it actually is the leading cause of hysterectomies in the United States. And so um, within that realm of, you know, 90%, you know, just before 50. So there are about seven out of 10 women will have fibroids. But of those seven out of 10, majority of those women are either going to be African-American women to Black women and then um, Hispanic women also. Three-fold increase in Black women who suffer from fibroids and then two-fold increase of Hispanic women that suffer from them. Fibroids, wow. yes. Yeah, so so it's a very um, alarming rate. And, and much more personally, not only did I suffer from them, my family members had them. My, I can probably count easily on both hands. I can name 10 women right now that I personally know that have either had fibroids, have them, um, and have dealt with symptoms from them. And some of those symptoms being things like usually when, because you can have them and never have symptoms, but when you do have symptoms and they become debilitating, you will experience things like heavy bleeding, um, painful menstrual cycles, um, fatigue, um, pressure in the lower abdomen um, area kind of affecting the, your ability to urinate. So all of these symptoms, longer, long uh, menstrual cycles where you're having a period that is going beyond seven days. And so because it's something that I personally have suffered from, I really think it's important that I not only highlight this, but I welcome women to please, please, please reach out to your medical provider because it really isn't normal. I myself went through um, um, a two and a half year period again, and, and I've just had this surgery. So when I say, you know, I just had this taken care of was about a month ago, four weeks to be exact. Wow. Yes. But for the two and a half years prior to that, I was, uh, I had a menstrual cycle that lasted 14 days. And I thought that that was okay. And this is coming from a clinician. And so <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because myself, knowing what needs to be done, knowing um, what, you know, I need, and I, and I had tried different things to help, you know, it, it's really important that I've recognized that a lot of people just suffer in silence because of either embarrassment, because, you know, you just feel like, well, this is not something I want to bring up. And I just really want to encourage more people to um, reach out to your clinician. And if you don't especially an women, I think that this is why ovarian cancer goes undetected so mm-hmm. long is is women have bloating, they have cramping, they have they have these signs and symptoms and they say, oh, it's something I ate or I, mm-hmm. I, I still got to take care of the kids. I got to take care of my family. I got to do whatever. Yeah. Um, and their health comes last or yeah. they or they really do just brush it off and they, th- you know, they, they just brush it off because they don't have time or they think it's something they did. Mm-hmm. And often when women do present to their clinician, Mm -hmm. women's pain is not taken as seriously. And Mm -hmm. on that note, um, can you speak to why fibroids affect people of color more? 
Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up the pain because that leads me into um, explaining going back in history in the United States. So there's Dr. Sims. He is um, heralded as the um, you know father of gynecology in the United States. He was a gentleman who um, performed um, surgery on enslaved uh, Black women uh, without anesthesia. Oh, my God. He, yes. He's also the person who developed the speculum. So really, and, and up until, yes. And so for years, there have been statues, there have been, you know, memorials, you know, things just kind of, you know, held up in different parts of the nation because of this gentleman, but never. And his idea then, I should say, with, with performing these surgeries, because his his focus was to fix um, fistulas. And which are basically these tracks that develop in between the lining of the rectum and the uterus, just so after childbirth. And so a lot of women were experiencing this. And so his idea is, oh, let me try to figure this out. But then you're performing these surgeries. Number one, not consented, obviously. And number two, without anesthesia, because his idea then was, and this is not just him, this is the vast majority of doctors then where Black women didn't feel pain. And so this thought, it, you know, I, I think it was like 30 surgeries later of, of, of different um, Black uh, enslaved women, it was when he, quote unquote, figured out how to fix this. But what I really want to point out in this story is not just him, but really the idea that when you invoke such trauma on it, not only just that woman, but genetically what is kind of sucked into the um, the body, the soul, the this is passed on because it, this is one of many things that have happened in this country as it relates to black um, care of black people, African American people, pe descendants of slaves in this country. Is you've had things like the Tuskegee experiment, things that have essentially come up to um, have black people be weary of um, obtaining care at a rate that that is, you know, a lot higher, let's say, in um, the white population. There is, I mean, to me, when you think about, well, why is the infant mortality rate so high in African-American women in this country? I always go back and think all of the things that have happened beforehand that prevent us from outside of just socioeconomic um, uh, things that can affect a, a person to just have access to care. I also think of I uh, people that don't want to um, go to care because they, the lack of trust they have in their clinician. And so we really have to focus on that. It is not to say that this is what's causing fibroids, but you can imagine how somebody would be less inclined to obtain care when there is this idea that, well, I don't know that I trust the care that I'm going to receive. I don't know if this clinician yeah. is going to have my best interest at heart. And so rather than go in, I'm just going to wait it out and and perhaps try to tr try some other method to hopefully get my care and this is not just for fibroids this is for health in general absolutely i'm still so as a white person i have not i mean as a female i do experience what that is like um but as a white person i have not experienced that obviously and it's it is heartbreaking to me and i I think what listeners might want to know is how could we help people of color get better health care? To me, what has to happen in healthcare is we have to really focus on seeing every individual for who they are. So this idea of, you know, and this kind of goes into um, 
you know, when we talk about the biases that may be present, a lot of unconscious biases, you know, the way textbooks are written, the way, um, you know, pain scales were developed, all of these things. I think it's important that we really see people for who they are. When I say that, I mean, when you treat someone that's of Asian descent, when you treat a person that's, you know, of Latin descent, that you, you really should take into account that from a cultural perspective, maybe the foods they eat are different. Um, you know, when you treat a black person, you know, an African, you know, because, you know, when I say black, you know, because this came up in a talk that I did before this idea of like, well, why, why do we say black and, you know, versus, you know, African-American, because there are descendants of slaves that are in this country, um, that are different. These are people that were, that, were enslaved in this country, brought from different parts of um, countries in Africa. So there's that group. But then you have people like myself, who I am a Nigerian born, um, now living in the United States. And so that's different. That's mm-hmm. also different from the, than someone that's Caribbean. But it's important to know that all of those culturally are, we still, there's still different cultures within that. But it's really important that you just, you really take that into consideration. This idea of, I don't see color, um, no, I do want you to see color. I want you to see right. color because when you see color is you are validating that you see me. Yeah, I think we cannot cookie cut care and or or expect to be care for a white person is the standard because mm-hmm. it it is not. It's I mean, that's what society wants us to th- wants us to think and that's what's been shoved down everyone's throats that that being white is the standard and the white experience is the standard but i i want to just say to the audience that that could be listening have you considered why that is and mm-hmm. how how damaging that could be to someone that doesn't identify as a white person. So like you're just devaluing that entire experience that this other that this person has. No, that make that's exactly correct. And I and to me, and I recognize that we all don't live in areas that are considered diverse populations. I recognize that in in the country. But I still, you know, it, it, it's not that you don't need to go very far to find somebody that's not of your ethnicity. And to right. me, when you do happen to, and this is at work at, at the groceries, I know I don't mind where it is, just making an effort to try to get to know that person, under, understand them. Because you're right, the, the care and the recommendations I'm going to give, you know, my white patient on hypertension and their blood pressure being high is probably not going to be the same recommendations to the T that I would give my black patient because I recognize there are different things. There's a diff there may be a difference in the diet that you consume. There may be a difference in the stressors in your life, right? That, you know, mm-hmm. you may be living a life where you don't experience certain stressors as the white person. Whereas this black person, I have to I gotta talk to you about a lot more things that can be attributing to your blood pressure being elevated. And I just I want the listeners to know that it is not up to black people to teach us about racism and racism also exists within healthcare and it's not up to black people in healthcare to educate us but mm has been so gracious to come here today and to talk about this and so i i really really appreciate it i think there's a lot we can learn from from you um but let's shift gears a little bit because I want to cover what MM Powered is about. Absolutely. And perfect segue because I will say that I did recently, um, I was asked to do a talk um, and it was on, you know, race and 
I titled it Combating Racism and just how to be a better ally. And really, I use that talk as a myself and um, a colleague of mine use that talk to give people kind of a template of what you now need to go forth and conquer if you are willing to be um, an ally and wanting to know what anti-racism looks like. And so it is on my website. Um, MM Powered is a company that I started three years ago. Um, Of course, you will see that MM is my first name and then Powered. And so the idea is just this um, wanting people to embrace radical self-love and radical well. self-awareness in changing our life in order to essentially achieve wellness. Wellness, that wellness is not just physical health, which is what is the most popular thing we know about being well. Yes. Um, it is mental health. That is so important on, on, on a level that I think to me, COVID-19 has exposed. I think if you mm-hmm. didn't know about your well, uh, your mental well, wellness, you know about it now. How important your environmental health is, how important mm-hmm. your spiritual health is, how important all of these occupational health, environmental health, tying back to fibroids, recognizing that, oh, wow, you know, so you mean that, you know, things that in the environment and things that I eat and consume that are, you know, high in levels of estrogen can also feed my fibroids to grow. Huh, who would have known? So those are all things that are so important to just us being well. And it's important to know it is, we will never achieve a hundred percent, you know, wellness in all branches. But my goal is to hopefully get people to recognize these different branches, how it relates to their life and how to just drop a little bit of, you know, nourishment into each branch. So that's what I do with my company. It sounds like your um, your spirit is full of energy and full of, like you have to, if you don't get the energy out, you're going to explode. And <laughs> it sounds like you just like have so much to give and you give and you give and you give like a lot of healthcare professionals out there. You just give and give. So what do you do to cope with the tough stuff, the system you're working in? What kind of self-care methods do you apply to your life? And I'm so glad you asked that because I think that's probably the most important question that I've been asked because with everything I just said, I think anyone listening can recognize how demanding that can become, how um, stressful. I, I and, and I'm not recommending a sabbatical, but I did take a break before, you know, the current position I'm in. I did take an eighth month break from working as a physician assistant. I'll do things like I'll go for a walk. Um, luckily, I'm blessed to live by a beach, so I may go take a walk on the beach. Um, but for the most part, I just go in my neighborhood. I do a lot. I, I purposely clear my mind because sometimes what tends to happen is what you said, when you are at this level of you give, and a lot of us are like this, you give and you give and you give because you really want to see the world be a better place and you want to see people thrive. It can become so draining and exhausting. And it's really important that I fulfill myself. And so I do a lot of just quiet days. You know how to say no. And I think a lot of people don't know how to say no. And a lot of people listening also just don't use their vacation time. Some people don't have a lot of vacation time, but a lot of people in healthcare until until COVID hit, a lot of people working in healthcare just didn't use their PTO. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's like that's true. an American culture issue. Like a lot of a lot of workers are not allotted the vacation time. And that is a problem. That is its own separate problem. But workers that have earned vacation time don't feel like they can take it. 
you're right. I don't know what the statistic is, but it's it's very, very bothersome that there's so many hours that go unused every year because some people are employed by employers who have use it or lose it vacation yep. um, time. Yep. Physically being present in the building is its own stress. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. If you have to put makeup on, if you have to put like real pants on. Um, yeah, so I, I get it. That's a whole nother like if you have to put like, are you putting your mask on when you go to work or are you taking your mask off when you go to work? And that's yes. a whole that's a deep that is a deep question. MM, it has been so fabulous talking to you and being educated by you. Um, how can listeners find you if they want to connect with you? How can they do that? Thank you so much again, Vanessa, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, I can definitely be found so uh, several ways. First and foremost is my website, which is, as stated earlier, mmpowered.org. So that's E-M like Mary, E-M like Mary, the word powered. Um, so P-O-W-E-R-E-D dot org. Um, and also on social media platforms, on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm not as active on Twitter, quite honestly, but Instagram, you can <laughs> definitely find me um, at Empowered as well. Beautiful. Well, thank you for being here. And listeners, you know what to do. You can find Dose of Support on Facebook, on Instagram. We have our website at doseofsupport.com. And you can always email me at hello at doseofsupport.com. All right. So we will see you next week. Thanks. Every role in healthcare is important, and these experiences matter. We'll be back next week with a brand new guest and a whole different story. Until then, make connections, you guys. Give each other a dose of support. Dose of Support is written, produced, and edited by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by Rafael Sequeira. Don't forget to rate the show, write a review, and leave feedback wherever you listen. I'm punching out until next week, where we try to find some self-care in healthcare once again.